Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Well, here's our final session. So let's just get right to it and welcome Mark back up here. This the Eutychus se- se- session where, you know, Paul went all day. <laughs> he got all day to go. Uh, we're going to talk a contemporary scene of our work. And um, this is, you know, kind of done a bit, you know, theology, pastoral theology. This one is going to be really just up front kind of more sociological, more sociology in the sense of just kind of describing our uh, scene, our context, uh, and what the end, what's a few little admonitions. And we'll start kind of like at 50,000 feet, and we'll look at just basically a few, the major world kinds of labor economies, and then set ourselves in context here, a modern one, and then some of the kind of challenges in the work world uh, presently for most of us, North Americans here. United States, and then in with a few little admonitions, all right? So the contemporary scene of our work, and it's actually very biblical to look at the context you're in. You know, the, the Old Testament, Chronicles twelve thirty two, it talks about the men of Issachar, right, who had understanding of their times. <laughs> and then we are to be people who serve our generation, We're not serving the 17th century. This is the 21st century, and we're in a North American context. So it's very, very biblical and theological to understand where you are, the place, the time, in order to to fashion more effective approaches and strategies. So let's do that. Let me just mention kind of briefly what most people agree. There have been four kinds of uh, major economies. Some of these exist even in certain places down together. But there's a hunter, a hunter kind of economy based on finding, following animals, killing them, cooking and eating them. They say hunter-gatherer, but that's, there's so much evolutionary baggage attached to that, I think. But you see this in scripture. You see Adam after the fall. He was he killed animals and put skins on, right? The fall meant we kill animals now and eat. And you get the animal skins. And then later, right after Moses, we're told about Nimrod, who was characterized as a great hunter. So there are economies that are grounded in going out and killing and eating. Surviving through hunting. There's also, you know, and this is this one's huge: the the agrarian kind of economy, farming, literally tilling the ground. Adam was a pre-fall. Adam was a gardener, farmer, <laughs> tilling the ground. And this means you got to stay in a place and develop a village, <laughs> and work the land seasonally to yield its 
increase. And I guess livestock farming is considered um, part of an agrarian kind of culture now. Abel, right? Abel comes and brings his animal sacrifice, and Cain brings his vegetables. And there's a lot to see there. I can't, can't probe. And in agrarian kinds of societies, unlike today, you basically did, you, you, you were born and you knew you were going to be working some way on that farm. Kids started laboring very early, <laughs> as soon as they could do stuff, use their hands and walk around. And, right? and, and the, un- the family unit wasn't just today, the family unit is more a unit of consumption. Then, in an agrarian kind of society, your family unit is a unit of production. Everybody worked to take care of the farm. You ever watch Little House on the Prairie? <laughs> right? Everybody contributes and does their thing to survive, to keep the farm going. And the more kids, the merrier. Because you had a bigger workforce, bigger army to protect <laughs> your, your farm and your property. Right? So in the U.S., actually, for most of the U.S., most of U.S. history, No, no, not quite most. About half. It was, ma- you know, major agrarian economy. I think this is correct. I, I have to. Do- I didn't double check it. I thought I read in 1790. It's about 15 years after independence. The U.S. was 80 percent agrarian labor. Like four out of five. Workers were agrarian farmers. Today, 2017, 1 to 2%. <laughs> so we've seen a massive change. When Tocqueville came to the States, he said this was this, you know, this incredible agrarian paradise. You know, he just had farmers everywhere. I live in Pennsylvania, right? northeastern state. Well, Pennsylvania is basically Pittsburgh on the west end, Philadelphia on the east and a big Amish farm <laughs> in the middle. You know, very, you think of some of these northeastern states by their city, but they're really like mostly rural, still agrarian kinds of settings. So that's been a huge, 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 huge econ- economic kind of system that has dri- that's driven half of the U.S. Uh, existence. But then that gave way. What happened in the United States and happened in Europe and various places and is happening in, in all over Africa and other places now is the agrarian has given way to the industrial economy. Right? Machines over man. Mechanical processes as opposed to manual human labor processes take over. And this is actually when you start seeing the emergence of cities. Because agrarian requires lots of land and space out in the country, big farms. When you develop machines that can process things, you can just put those in any place in a city. So the Industrial Revolution allowed for these places, these cities to emerge. I think this is right again. I'm sorry I didn't write these down specifically, but I think... In 1800, London had 50,000 people, basically just a, one click above a podunk, right? 
A hundred years later, so the Industrial Revolution sweeps through in the middle of the 19th century, 1850s, 1860s, you know, all this massive development, machine things, organization. 1900, I think a million people lived in London. And that's, that happened over here, too. Big cities just grew very rapidly with the, with the kind of emergence of, of machinery during the Industrial Revolution. And work became rapidly specialized. No longer were you a family that did everything, <laughs> soup to nuts. Now, your kids got a little older, and some of them went off to cities, or sometimes fathers went off to cities to earn and did very specialized kinds of particular work in order to support the family back on the homestead. So labor was very specialized, no longer this kind of generalist farmer where you do everything. And you know, when you read about this during the Industrial Revolution, Christians thought the world was coming apart. They really thought it was coming apart. People were scared that, you know, you sent your kids off to this big city with all these people and they're 13 years old and working machines and this is when the, we had to develop labor laws to protect children <laughs> because there was exploitation. Oliver Twist, anyone? <laughs> right? There was exploitation, mass exploitation going on. So it really changed things. The Industrial Revolution um, really had an impact. It, Africa, large parts of Africa are actually going through this at a rapid pace right now. Agrarian villages and in, in, in parts of, of countries are giving way to uh, urbanization and fathers in poor towns going off to big cities. In fact, this is one of the reasons cited for the rapid, expand, uh, rapid growth of AIDS in Africa is fathers were leaving their wives for months and, you know, and you don't stop having sex when you leave your spouse. An unregenerate person they're going to have sex, or even some professing believers, of course. And so they were getting having, uh, 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 sex with AIDS-infected people and bringing it back. To, and so that was, a, that's what I read, is, accounts for one, uh, one of the ways that AIDS expanded so rapidly is fathers being away, working jobs, kind of an impact of kind of industrialization. And the world, of course, the Industrial Revolution meant that the world began to shrink very fast. No more writing a letter, sending it through Pony Express, and getting someplace two weeks later or later, and then you not getting a response for a month. The telegraph meant almost instant. <laughs> I read an account of how shocked well, they laid the transatlantic line for the telegraph so that New York and London could communicate. And I remember reading an account of how shocking it was to be able to communicate to a Londoner <laughs> in the middle of the 19th century almost instantly. And of course, it was high-end stuff. It had to become domesticated and then phones and all this stuff. So the Industrial Revolution fragmented labor, shrunk the world, kind of work that made countries come closer and, and things more accessible. It made other industries go out of business. The Pony Express went out of business, I'm sure, <laughs> when telegraphs pro pro proliferated. No more need for these guys who could ride the horses really fast into a little outpost, grab the bag, and keep going. It had, it had all types of, uh, 
uh, effects. But the industrial economy has given way to, and people don't even know how to describe it now, what we're in. I see the title and label post-industrial. You know, because we're not sure. It hasn't fully shaken out yet. And of course, this is service economy, service-based economy. Industries serve or provide a service more than manufacturing goods. Manufacturing is only 8% of our present economy. <laughs> only 8%, not even 10%. We're service-oriented economy. And um, knowledge class, the personal computer has changed everything. So that so much is knowledge-based information-based, the information age, internet, all these kinds of things have rapidly revolutionized business, uh, the basis of our economy. And one of, the, one of the things that's done, because with the, with the leaving of manufacturing, with the shrinking of it, right, where towns have lost their plants and things like that, and the emergence of this knowledge class where people need to know things and need to have a bunch of information to be educated, what, one of the things that's doing is it's hollowing out a middle in our economy. The, 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 you know, the, the big, fat middle class that America has been known for. People are just in this middle range. You know, not a big aristocracy, not a huge underclass. Actually, that is shrinking. A lot of people have been thrown, and it's going in two directions. A lot of people, if you're part of the knowledge class, you know, during the emergence of, you know, venture capital and all these big firms and computers and Google and all this stuff, a lot of people who just got some knowledge who were in the middle class became wealthy and went and been thrown into the knowledge class. And then with the evaporation of manufacturing, a production-based economy, in, in the interest of service-based economy, a lot of people have flattened out, gone poor. And so we're getting this huge... You know, uh, Charles Murray wrote a book called Coming Apart. Things are coming apart. We're having wide chasms growing all over the place where you lower class exists, and then there's this knowledge elite class that exists. That's kind of one of the impacts of the, this post-industrial economy that we live in now. And we don't know where it's going to go. We don't know where it's going to go. You know, and people can re actually... Work has no longer, it, it, there's this huge, what, telecommuting aspect to a lot of knowledge class labor now. You don't have to get up and go to a place like the Industrial Revolution made. You go to a corporation, go to a factory. Now you just get up, you open up your computer, stay in your pajamas, and you talk to your boss in San Francisco <laughs> on teleconference with your, your, your uh, partner in, in Austin, Texas. Right? Again, that shrinking of the world, but also kind of uh, taking out this element of this commute, going distances. That's a lesson for the knowledge class. Lower skilled jobs, you still have to get up and you have to go places and things, and you still have to do it, go to a particular place. Okay, so those are, there are four kinds of those world economies, right? We're in this post industrial. Let me just mention quickly four. Structural changes within our current moment. Again, just in the interest of kind of trying to understand our times. 
Here are the four, and then let me just detail them a little bit. Globalization, automation, immigration, and consumerization. These are kind of four structural changes that have happened that are within this current economy that we, we exist in, this post-industrial, whatever you want to call it, uh, economy. Globalization. So I use Norton products, you know, for my virus, and they used to be owned by Symantec. So whenever I had questions, I'd pick up my phone, look at the number, you know, it's somewhere in Silicon Valley, call that number, thinking I'm talking to somewhere in San Francisco, and where was I transferred to? India. A call center in India. The young man speaks good English, but clearly not native English. And so here I am in Pittsburgh in New York, I think I'm calling this company in Mountain View, California, to be actually talking to someone because there's, you know, the hour difference means they can just be 24 hours on. That's globalization, right? Labor, work, this is a massive tr structural transformation. And we know that a lot of big companies, you know, the CEOs of companies, they're not in it to lose money. When they realize that labor is cheaper somewhere else for the lower income of skills and that they can build plants there without the regulative oppression <laughs> that North America has, they're sending, they're shipping aspects of their corporation overseas. Globalization. Now the competitive competition is not just between you and other people in your town, you and other people in other states, it's between you and people around the world <laughs> for a job. And what has happened, again, a lot of this is causing the country to, to, to split, to bifurcate along. We're getting double, dual class. <laughs> this middle is shrinking where people are basically the same. I grew up lower middle class, but I lived around upper middle class people. I mean, you know, we basically were in the same world. They had a lot, you know, they, they had nicer, they had, they, their parents could get them a car, you know. We basically, you know, generally you walked in the same kind of world even though they had a little bit more. That is rapidly changing. And globalization is doing that in that it, it's getting rid of lower skilled jobs. You can't not be educated a certain way and get, you, you know, just graduate from high school and go to a plant <laughs> and have a decent middle class existence. Those kinds of jobs, there's much more competition for them and a lot of them are ex being exported away, creating this chasm again. Good for the consumer. It can keep the cost of goods low, but bad for the worker, or hard for the worker, I should say. We don't wanna, I don't want to be so self-centered to think that America is the, the center of God's universe, right? In some of these nations, it's a blessing to nations that, are industrializing and, and, and rapid, their economies are rapidly growing, even as it's harder for us, you know. So that's globalization, obviously. Labor market's very huge because now we're competing with other countries for the same kinds of jobs. Automation. You ever go into one of these McDonald's as these kiosks? <laughs> Where machines are replacing people? And, you know, there's dystopian novels and books and movies about machines replacing humans. <laughs> you know, Skynet finally taking over. Right? The big telephonic system in the sky. You know? There's always been a fear of that. It's actually happening. 
just technological automation that is causing some jobs to be replaced. And I don't shouldn't fear automation. I think automation is a, is a function of the creation mandate. We're supposed to subdue, and we could extend our capacity to subdue by making things that help us. So technology is actually a kind of function of subduing, and it helps us be even more efficient in things. And it, it, it's a play on the in, in, innate, innovative capacity that God has given us to take control. And there's this interesting verse right in the Tower of Babel scene. It's used bad, but it does, this is not inherently bad. It, it says, you know, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Genesis 11.6, right in that bad, you know, they were going to get, they are conspiring together. What was bad is that they used that ability, that creative, innovative ability against God in defiance of him. But yet God still has given us this capacity for innovation to think of ways that help us subdue, to till, and to keep the garden. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. That's a pretty bold, audacious statement. And technology is good again. It's intended to extend human productivity, not replace it completely. And man is indispensable. Machines aren't going to take over. (laughs) There's no need to be afraid of that. So it's good, essentially, automation in most instances, but it is causing a major disruption. It's not not just in, um, again, not just for, like, uh, uh, entry-level jobs and fast food. There's a, there was a study by uh, McKinsey, and they estimated that there could be, not just in terms of affecting uh, entry-level, lower-skill kinds of jobs, that automation is not just affecting them. They said they're estimating that 110 to 140 million full-time workers <laughs> could be ultimately be replaced by automation. That they're developing automated things that can replace certain knowledge class workers. You'll never be able to replace cooks and or uh, you know barbers and these kinds of particular skill that require iterative interaction between human beings and specialized treatment that's peculiar in particular. You'll never be able to replace that. Humans, God has made us to be able to do that to re- to react in those kinds of particular ways. You're not going to get a machine that can just be a human. But it is, this thing is affecting the, the, the workforce, and it's doing it, again, in this way that is separating out classes. So globalization, automation, immigration, of course. Immigration being good for the economy. Also good for upper reaches of society because, again, it lowers goods. Immigrants work. I've lived in immigrant communities, been in churches, and labored right in the midst of places that were were, uh, landing spots for Central American immigrants, uh, Egyptian, Middle Eastern immigrants. And so seeing some of these dynamics right up close. And what happens, you know, Immigrants come and they're very thankful for the American system above the system they came from, and they'll work a job with gratitude 
that another American who's looking for a job won't do. <laughs> you see that. <laughs> My immigrant neighbors and friends would do what needed to be done. And a lot of the immigrant families, they really are like very strong they, traditional cultures. So the fathers ruled. <laughs> and so those kids were not out cutting up. <laughs> because they knew they were in trouble with dad. And I've seen the fathers interact with their kids. And I never saw immigrant kids out at, you know, late at night. I saw a lot of American kids running around and things like that. Um, so they can keep costs low. And so it's good for consumption, for, for purchasing things. It has an effect. But it is displacing. There's some displacement there. And obviously there's issues of rule of law and things like that. If someone comes here and hasn't gone through the proper procedures and things like that. And there's a lot of that. There is. But this is just one, I'm just mentioning this because this is one of the things that is having a major effect on labor, particularly in people outside the knowledge class. You don't work for some uh, company and you have your computer science or whatever, you know, some higher skill. But just for the average person who might have done manufacturing or or whatever, any any of these kind of good kinds of labor where if you work hard in years past, was more times than not something sufficient for you to participate in the American dream, as it were. Right? So immigration, the last, last kind of major structural change, consumerization. Right? We, psychologically and morally, we really do understand ourselves. And just look at, look at market. Look at the gauntlet when you go to the supermarket. You go to the store, right? It's a gauntlet of buy me. <laughs> Take this. You turn on the TV. You know, these, these companies have bought, spent millions of dollars to, 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 to hit you with 30-second, 45-second, one-minute ads that say, you need this. <laughs> Everywhere you go. <laughs> you can't even watch Saturday college football without them breaking in and saying, this ad is brought to you from Sun America State, you know, the stadiums are named after you know, companies. They're just throwing it in your face. BB&T Stadium and Sun America Trust. And because we have become a nation of consumers. And nothing testifies to that as much as the debt that the average American carries. Because people are spending more. They're consuming more than they're producing and taking in. And that has had a major, a massive effect. This is what I was talking with Michael about. Uh, Neil Postman, amusing ourselves to death. I think he gets into this, doesn't he? Michael, does he get into this? It's kind of this. We're just awash in acquisition. We break the Tenth Commandment in ways hardly seen in history of man. We covet. And we acquire acquisitiveness. And so, we're consumers more than producers. You know what that does? And companies, so companies can undercut benefits because they're serving their consumer more than their worker, more than their laborer. They're privileging customers over their employees. So this is why you see benefits and protections are lessening for workers. Colleges are, there's the adjunctification at colleges. 
hiring fewer full-time people and hiring a bunch of people who teach one-off, two-off courses. Because they can do that. Unionized labor has been, you know, radically changed. So consumer consumerization, this becoming consumptive as a people more than productive, it's had it's kind of really caused a lot of change in the basic the economy of labor and how work is set up and structured. All right, so that's just a little bit of that stuff. How do we respond to some of these things? What is the church supposed to do? How do we respond? Nothing, there's no magic bullet here. I'm just saying, we're still called to be the church. Christians are still called to be followers of Christ in the way that he's called us and commanded us. Let me just lay out four quick things. General, nothing revelatory or new here. Uh, a, there's an A, there's a B, there's a C, and there's a D. To kind of close this out. We really do have to be, and this is A. There's a there's a there's a, a cultural there's there's a adaptability. We've got to be adaptable because of the rapid rate of change that we're undergoing. And I'm not talking about change ecclesiology or anything like that. I'm talking about us as particular people formed to be flexible to the quick movements of things. The days of, probably most of you, you know, you're probably old enough, maybe your father or your parents um, worked one job over their whole professional career. <laughs> you know, 30, 40 years at the same place, retired from the place they started at 18 or 22, as the case may be. Those days are gone. <laughs> the average length of a job now is three and a half to four years. And that, that's been my personal experience. Most of the people I run around with in, in my world are not at one job. It is a blessing if you can be at a job for decades today. Things are just changing so much. And that requires you to be, you can't be an entitled person. You can't be a person who is expect, expecting things to cater to you. So part of it, to be adaptable is just to be formed virtuously, to be formed in, in, in righteous ways that, you're, you're thankful to God for what he gives you. and You're not frustrated by the changes and the rapid things. You just follow God where he calls you. You've got you to gotta be formed into these kinds of things. A lot of, you know, a lot of people are starting new careers at 45 or 50 years of age now. That's never been the case before. People are having to go through retraining uh, in mid-careers, <laughs> midpoints in their career. That's unprecedented in American history. So we've we got to just be an, a, 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 commit to being a nimble and adaptable people, which is to say the church should be forming functional <laughs> citizens of the kingdom of God who can work in whatever kind of kingdom of man exists around them. And that's just, you know, read Proverbs and live it. <laughs> live it in the gospel. Because, you know, one of the things in reading up on this work and economy and all these things, we don't really have a work shortage in America. You know what we have a shortage of? We have a worker shortage. 
I could tell you, I know people that were con- contractors who were looking for electricians. They couldn't find people who could pass the drug test and show up for six weeks of training. And there was the promise. You start off as, you know, electrician, there was promise a uh, uh, $50,000 job. <laughs> Far better than zero. So there's all these jobs and contracting and things like that, but ha- they're having a hard time filling it with people who weren't addicts and people who could act, who had the discipline to get up and go to training and learn and stay at it and be gainfully employed. We really don't have a work shortage. And I, these stories happen all over the place. Plants opening up out in smaller towns, and they can't find enough people to come and do the job and stay at it. <laughs> you know, so we really do. The, the, the dirty little secret is we don't have a work shortage in the U.S. We have a functional, competent worker shortage. And I'm talking about just basic ability to, 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 to have enough discipline to wake up in the morning, get dressed, and get to the job on time. I, I mean that. It is amazing how hollowed out <laughs> we are at the basic level of just functional capacity to do the, do the creation ordinance to just work in a way that gives you gainful employment. So to be adaptable is just to be a functional person, A. And then B, we know this, and a lot of you do this so well. (laughs) This is an application of just be fruitful, multiply. Build. (laughs) Build stuff. Baby make. (laughs) I know, that probably sounds so crass for a single guy saying make babies, right? But I'm relying on the word of God. This isn't me. This is this. Christians, wherever civilization has, has here's our favorite word, flourish. <laughs> wherever it's been what God has intended it to be, he, Christians have built things. Who, who built the first hospitals? Who built the first orphanages? Who discovered wind turbines? <laughs> Christians need to build. Just keep building. And build babies. We need a work, you, you know, you need qualified workers? Make a few. <laughs> Get those arrows that are the mighty man in your hand. So a lot of you do this well. You had six kids. I love being, and you know, I'm so tired of the urban church settings I've been in where there's just this quiet contract that we will serve our career and not our kids. And you don't see six, I love when I see six kids, you know, and all this. Loved it. Loved seeing Michael's kids all running around, the Dion kids and all this. Beautiful. This is part of being fruitful and multiplying. Fruitfulness is productivity and labor and productivity and love. <laughs> Build things. And look, one of the things, one of the reasons to say this, because we're, as the, and the West is getting more and more hostile. I keep wondering if in my lifetime I'm going to be thrown in jail for saying that a man and a woman are the only people who can get married. I just A lot of my pastor friends were wondering, you know, is there going to come a point, am I going to be about 65 when they start really start throwing us in jail over this? Things, you know, there's, an, there's a secularization. There's a darkness. The, ba- the, the foundations are crumbling in some basic ways that we've never seen in civilization in, in the West to this degree. And certain jobs are off limits. I talk to my friends who work in major law firms and things, and they say they will get fired if they just simply say they're pro 
quote, traditional marriage, which is God's way. And there are certain professions that are becoming off limits. I mean, it's getting to a point where, you know, if you go into baking you could, you, and you're a Christian, you could, you're scared. <laughs> and so there's all this opposition. And one of the ways Christians can respond to that and have is we just got to start our own ecosystems <laughs> where we're sustaining ourselves. I'm not talking about hiving off of some intentional community necessarily. I think in some instances that is good. But thinking in such a way that we're building, we're making babies, we're building sustainable kinds of uh, economic endeavors because we're increasingly being shut out from the world. <laughs> I have a friend, he worked in education, and education is just overrun with godless feminism and the assault on boys in the public education system. And he's a man, and he was run out working for a woman principal and things. Just can't be a basic man with just basic masculinity and survive in a lot of public education systems. You will be harassed out. And there's just industries that are becoming increasingly off-limits to, 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 to a basic Christian. <laughs> so one of the solutions is be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> the cultural mandate is something that the church does. Our biggest mission is the Great Commission, but it's not excluding the cultural mandate. Churches grow by creating babies and conversion. <laughs> so build. Baby make. Create our own labors. Take over. <laughs> Christians should aim to bring in Christ's dominion <laughs> through outbirthing everybody. <laughs> and outconverting. We'll get to that in a second. Okay, so adaptable, build, baby make. Commit a community. I already mentioned this. Churches are losing, you know, one of the things is it's not beneficial to be a nominal Christian and show up at church anymore. You're not getting much out of it. It used to be you had to show your membership, and it was a thing society gave you favor for. Right? You remember Bill, you're old enough to remember Bill Clinton carrying his Bible after the Monica Lewinsky scandal, walking with pastors? That was supposed to get cred. <laughs> right? Whereas President Obama, he, really, he never talked about going to church. He would go from time to time, whatever. But that was there's no social credibility any longer with just attending a church. So churches are losing that mushy nominal middle and becoming smaller communities of committed. This is just the way churches are going sociologically when you just look at. They're becoming local, neighborhood-based uh, communities of very committed people. Because going to church costs you now. Sunday's become a more busy day. There's no social value in, in being a member, so people are going to church because God has called them and has, has converted them. So you're losing that nominal, mushy uh, middle. And we need these committed kinds of uh, communities. Almost like, almost like kind of catacombs, right? These devoted Christians are willing to go to the stake because they obey Christ. Be committed. Be committed to Christ's community. And finally, decide to D, disciple the nations. Jesus has all authority. He's claiming the world for himself. He's calling us out to witness to his cosmic rule. And the church is to teach all things that, is, that he has commanded. 
has been given a task as a church to make disciples. To put water on people who've submitted to Christ and grow them up. (laughs) That's the task of the church. We're to be about that all times and teach them. And part of teaching them is this one, this plank of their labor, what it means to serve the Lord in their work, what it means to carry out his command, to subdue. Um, And the church is to be focused and maintain its mission of making disciples, which includes discipling them in, in their work. And that's how God goes forth. That's how Christ's rule and reign extends from shore to shore. I'm glad Michael mentioned earlier, you know, I was reading Rodney Stark, his book um, about early Christianity. I forget what it, what it was called. But it's about this. Where he outlines the rise of early Christianity. How it went from this marginal faith <laughs> to mainstream and central. You know, Constantine. Like how long did that took? That didn't take very long. To get from this kind of marginal in 100 AD to Constantine declaring it the official uh, faith, whatever you think of that, Constantinianism. But massive growth accounts for how it got to that point. But when you break it down, and I did the math on this once, and I wish I could have retrieved it. If every just one believer, just one believer, if you just disciple in your lifetime, your whole life, I'm give you 30, 40 years of vibrant faith, you just disciple two people to maturity in Christ. And those two disciple two. I'm not saying change your whole city or change your whole family. If you just disciple two people to maturity, I mean mature followers of Christ, committed to his body, faithful in the spheres of life, their family, their work, worship. And everybody did that do the math sometimes. Sit down and just start calculating that out before it's just this incredible exponential impact you have. It doesn't, God takes seeds and turns them into mighty trees. So we, dis, we do the mission, we disciple, and the church equips you to disciple. God can do so much more than we can imagine. So it's got to be the church. Be the church in these things. Part of that discipling, again, includes work. Jesus says, teach them all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That's the whole counsel of God. And work is such a big sphere where we, that we occupy in life. So we've got to learn how to do that. So adaptable, build, baby, make. Commit to a community. Be a committed community that disciples the nations. Just being, just basically being the church in the midst of whatever rapid changes are undergoing in the society. Christ has given us our clear call and command. We follow out faithfully trusting him to do what he intends to do. Right? Empowering us by the spirit to carry it out to the glory of our Father. Amen. Lord, establish the work of our hands in all these ways and others. You put us here you equip us for the task. You don't leave us to ourselves, thankfully. You do not leave us and forsake us. And you have all authority and power. 
And so we go forward confidently and trustingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mark, again.